Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. Uh, we're back on our normal schedule after a couple weeks of guests, which I hope everyone enjoyed. Um, but uh, back here on Friday morning, February 28th, what's been uh, kind of a hectic week here in the markets, Matt. It has been, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that we're doing this podcast on Friday, Mark. I think um, a lot of people listening to this over the weekend, we will provide a voice of reason. Yeah, yeah, because it's been nothing but chaos, it seems like. From, it has been. From I, mean, media. I mean, panic mm-hmm. is, is the best way to kind of say that the, the trading environment. And, you know, trading a, a panic tape is never smart. Right, right, exactly. Um, so as always, we'll just run through uh, the numbers here for the month and the year. And as always, uh, the status from stockcharts.com. And these numbers are as of the market close on February 27th. Uh, so the S&P 500 index is down 7.65% for the month and down 7.8% for the year. The Dow down 8.81% for the month and down 9.71% for the year. The NASDAQ down 6.39% for the month and down 4.53% for the year. So on a relative basis, uh, tech stocks seem to be doing a little better than the general market. Um, The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 7.51% for the month and down 10.03% for the year. The International Index X United States down 6.16% for the month and down 8.02% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 1.45%, the two-year Treasury 1.11%, and the 10-year Treasury uh, sitting around all-time lows of 1.3%. Um, so markets uh, facing, as we talked about the past four or five days, Matt, a lot of selling uh, with people saying fears surrounding the coronavirus. So what are your kind of two cents here? 30 second outlook on it. Yeah, <clears throat> let me tackle this kind of head on, Mark, um, at the beginning of the podcast. So we sent some communications to our clients this past week, um, two different ones. Um, in very short, I think the market is overreacting um, to the rumor uh, and fear rather than actual facts. Yeah. Um, the actual active cases, when you take total cases, subtracting out people that have recovered, the actual number of active cases has been decreasing. Right. Now, I think at the end of the day, for the listeners to understand, there's two overwhelming issues the market is concerned about right now. First, how is this going to impact the U.S. consumer? If there is a uncontrollable spread in the U.S., I think the second concern for the market is the logistics supply chain. Okay, I'll tackle the second one first. It's going to be a lot easier. Right now, Chinese manufacturing on average, as of yesterday, is at somewhere between 50 to 60 percent production capacity. And I think that will ramp up in the coming weeks. I think the supply chain will work its way out. Second, and the biggest concern how it's going to affect the psyche and the spending of the U.S. consumer if it spreads in a way that is not controllable. That's the big what if. That's what people are watching. And I think the market is way ahead of itself, Mark, in in truly where we are in the U.S. with this virus. Yeah, I think it is, too. I just don't think there's enough data out there yet to have this big of reaction to it. Um, You know, I mean, there's a bunch of different news sources that are throwing out all these, you know, active case numbers and, you know, that type of thing. But it's like, you know, who really knows what the actual number is and who really knows what this effect is going to be? Because this could all be not saying it could all be smoke and mirrors, but it could be just seeming a lot worse than it actually is going to play out. I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but no, I mean, this is too big of a reaction, in my opinion, with too many unknown factors. I would agree. So one thing I want to throw out there real quick, this is from uh, late last night from Bespoke Investment Group. I emailed this to you last night. I'm going to share it with the listeners. 
It shows 20 data points going back to 1929 for the S&P 500, and it shows the fastest six-day drawdowns in history from all-time highs, okay? So fastest six-day drawdowns from all-time highs in history, 20 data sets. We are now at the quickest move down in history, okay? So through last night, six trading days down 12.12% mark, okay? Of all these 20 data sets, it took on average 105 days to get back to the all-time high. So let's call it three months. Okay. Again, this is just straight statistics. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the average return one month later uh, was 3%. And the average return six months later was 9.86. Again, the data set. So what I'm trying to get at is as violent as this money has come out of the market, which I would like to say I think is unwarranted at this time. Mm Mm-hmm. I think you're about to see during the bottoming process, most likely sometime next week, you're going to have some violent days to the upside, followed by an additional violent day to the downside. And for listeners, that is the bottoming process. Yeah. On top of it, you have something called the volatility index. This indicator is close to four standard deviations above its average. It's moved so quick. These things tend not to stay at these levels, volatility, and I think in the coming weeks, you're going to see that calm down as well. I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, no, I I agree with it. I just think, um, you know, again, that, you know, we're at a point right now where if you're making emotional decisions um, regarding your retirement accounts or your investment accounts, I think now is not the time to be doing that. Um, I think that number one, if you're completely freaking out um, and you can't handle this type of environment, number one, I think you're taking too much risk and that needs to be re-looked at and adjusted with your advisor. Um, And number two, um, I think that, you know, no one cares, you know, what they're selling right now. They're just selling, right? So it's not even like, you know, you know, looking at the fundamentals of a company like Apple or Amazon or anything like that, or how strong they've been over the past couple of months, it's just everything's just getting thrown out the window right now, exactly. no matter how good of a quality it is. Exactly. Right? So this kind of goes back for listeners to fourth quarter 2018. So different reason for this sell off. And that one lasted over the course of three months with a max drawdown of 20 percent. But those reasons were different. People were concerned about a global recession. They were concerned that the trade war was going to get out of hand. They were concerned that there was going to be um, um, military uh, action with North Korea. Mm -hmm. And all these things were happening at once. And what happened? The market hit an all-time high four months later. Yeah. And no one saw that during the panic selling. Mm -hmm. So when you say everything's getting thrown out, to, to explain that to listeners... You have conservative areas of the market that tend to hold up in sell-offs, things like utilities, things like healthcare, which is going to be in demand if this really gets out of control, right? or utilities, uh, consumer staples. What I'm getting at is all those things have gotten murdered with everything else in such a short period of time, right? which leads us to say that this is panic selling, and panic selling usually turns into panic buying. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, the the last point I wanted to make on that is, you know, it's times like these where you have a game plan in place where you already know, you know, for example, what your levels are, how much downside you're willing to take, where if you have a process and a plan in place, then you already know what your decision is going to be if market, you know, is up X percent, down X percent. My investments are up X percent, down X percent. Yep. Um, So going into it without a process, I think, makes times like this a lot more difficult. And I think that's what we're seeing from the fear of the consumer right now. Yeah. And I'm proud of our of our practice, Mark, because over this past week, we've been communicating with clients and, um, you know, we've received very minimal calls. I think clients understand that, you know, we're proactive and we're going to guide them through Uh, this challenging time. This is times for us to shine. And uh, listeners, I would just stress um, that during this time, continue to watch, uh, if you're clients of ours, watch our communication. And, um, you know, we will get you through this. Yeah, absolutely. 
So moving on, we have a lot for you actually this week, um, just because of you know the time that Matt and I have been away from the mic because of the past um, two weeks we've had guests on the episode, which have been great. Um, so we're kind of just getting back into it, but there's a lot of things that I know Matt and I want to get to today. So we'll try to do it in a timely fashion for you all. Um, a positive thing uh, talking about China too, Matt, is a few weeks ago, it looks like China reduced tariffs on about $75 billion of U.S. imports. So I think that's been kind of overshadowed by uh, fears of the coronavirus. That's but, a huge, it's huge news. Yeah, but that's, you know, once this passes, I think that, you know, that'll come more into focus, which was interesting. You know, other thing I'll throw out there, thinking of China in their market. Over the past six trading days, do you know that our market's down more than China? Mm-hmm. Now, some yeah, would sit there that. and say, well, China's uh, you know pumping money to the stock market. Good for them, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at some point, you know, with Trump's attitude towards the economy, if he starts making comments similar to what Japan's done and sit there and say, hey, if this gets bad enough, I'll Fed's instruct them to start stocks. buying stocks. Yeah, Wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, I wouldn't either. You watch the <laughs> tape either. if he says that. Oh, man. The take yeah. for listeners being, you know, um, the Quotron in the, in the market, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, so kind of moving away from the coronavirus, Max, I, there's a couple of things that I wanted to, you know, talk about that, you know, just listening to podcasts or reading research over the past couple of weeks I wanted to talk about. And I wanted to start this week with two random takes. So um, we're going to go a little out of order here from the normal order, but this thought kind of came to me um, a couple of weeks ago when Tesla stock was in the news um, because it's up 217% over the past six months. Okay. <laughs> I know that you love to talk about this, so we'll see if we can get you riled up. You're going to probably, you're probably in the pump right now. <laughs> I am. I am. Pull the choke, baby. <laughs> And I think it's pretty well known that Tesla is not yet profitable, right? Um, And my controversial statement to you, Matt, is does it really matter why a stock's price rises? And does anyone actually truly know why a certain stock increases at any given point in time? My argument is no. And we can actually relate this to the market right now in this fierce sell-off. Everyone's like, hey, The markets are selling off because of the coronavirus. Well, yeah, I kind of would agree with that, but I think there's other factors that people aren't considering. Like, for example, Bernie Sanders is in the lead in the polls right now, and the stock market and the economy generally think that if he gets into office, that it's not going to be good for stocks, right? Accurate. So that could be something. But to me, it doesn't even matter. All that matters is that we've had a very violent sell-off over the past week, and to me, it doesn't matter why it is. And I'm not trying to downplay the coronavirus because I think that's very serious. Sure. Um, but I think our industry gets too caught up in the why. And I think if you look at it from a fundamental standpoint, you know, someone can make a pretty damn good argument that Tesla is not investable. But at the same time, I would have loved to be in the Tesla mood. I would love to be in any investment that's up 217% over the past six months. Yep. So I'll let you respond. All right. So <laughs> uh, for listeners that don't know me very well, um, I, I tend to have a list of stocks that um, just baffle me. Uh, I've been in the industry for over 20 years and um, earnings do matter. And so the first thing that comes to mind for me is when I first started in the industry, it was during the uh, late 90s tech bubble and um, earnings did not matter. If you had a dot com in your name, that stock was hot. So uh, right after uh, 2000 and the uh, spending buildup to Y2K, um, all of a sudden the new year happened. All these companies were projecting profitability and didn't hit those estimates. So all of a sudden the market went from wanting to own internet stocks to, wow, earnings do matter. And the issue I have with it today with a lot of these unprofitable companies like a Tesla is you can only bleed money for so long, right? You can have all these earnings calls and they could sit there and say they lost 25 cents. They lost 30 cents that quarter, so on and so forth. Well, at the end of the day, there's a corresponding balance sheet and there's only so much cash that's on that balance sheet that they are just throwing out the window quarter after quarter to grow. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, one of two things has to happen. You're either going to have to raise more money. Now, the bond market is indicating that Tesla can't do any more bonds. The yields are too high. Mm -hmm. So what did they do recently? 
did this secondary stock offering. And literally, in a conference call a month ago, they said they wouldn't do that. They didn't need to do that. But their stock went up so much, I guess they couldn't say no. The point I'm making is companies that are healthy, that are growing that quick, should not be doing secondary stock offerings. Mm -hmm. They can't even get money in the bond market. And from my perspective, at the end of the day, here's where the rubber hits the road. I don't feel comfortable being in a stock that I feel I could wake up on any given market day and that stock be down 20, 30, 40%. And in my mind, Tesla fits that potential profile. And hence, since it's that type of risk, for me and our clients, it's uninvestable. Mm -hmm. So that's my response. Okay. Yeah. And I, I definitely see that point. But what if you have, you know, for example, if you have, you know, a diversified, I guess, systems of way you invest money where, you know, you say you get in when, you know, a company hits a 10 week high and you get out when it hits a 10 week low. Sure. I mean, something if, like if, that. If it's in the aspect of, uh, of risk control, right? Mm -hmm. And the weighting of a, of a speculative position is a lot lower in a client portfolio. Yeah, I could stomach that. Is it going to be in my top 10? No way. You know, I, I got to be able to have predictability in what I think are the earnings of these companies, even going through a week like this. You know, is this going to affect, let's take the largest size company in the S&P, Apple. Is this week going to affect their profitability? It could in the next quarter or two. But do I think when the holiday spending season comes along and they got a new 5G phone, is that really going to affect it? And could this just push back pent up demand? Those are all valid arguments, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that when you have a company where their cash flow is uh, very stressed and you go through a period like this, then it becomes real dicey. You know, Tesla, they have all this overhead cost and they're not delivering any cars and people aren't buying cars in China. I heard on Bloomberg uh, News yesterday that car sales in China over the past week are down 90%. Mm -hmm. Now, could that demand come back? Could, and most likely will. Right. But the point I'm making is, if you're a, a company that's stressed for cash, and you need that money now, not mm -hmm. in three months, right. changes the narrative. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. I just think that there is there is room for for a system like that that could help people catch some of these moves like a, a Tesla. Now, do I think it should be, you know, I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and a listener wrote into them and said that, you know, when Tesla was going crazy, he, you know, sold everything in his Roth and invested it all in the Tesla and it ended really, really badly. That type of thing, I think that has no there place. You go. But I think that if you have a systematized process, there is room for a trade like that or for an investment like that. Um, you know, to be able to catch a move like that. I don't think, you know, that, you know, with that volatile of a stock and that unprofitable of a, a, a company that it should be, a, you know, a discretionary decision because, you know, once you ride it up for 217% and it loses 20%, you're like, okay, well, it's going to go back up. And then it's down another 20%. You're Good like, point. it's going to go back up, down another 20 and then you just get hence, into a, a hence, spiral. Hence your view of having a disciplined process. Right, exactly. Okay. Yep. 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 I'm with you on that. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Um, another possibly controversial statement, man. We'll see what you think <laughs> after this. Um, but I'm going to go out and you on can't a hurt limb. me after a week like this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think that choosing your retirement slash investment accounts can arguably be more important than asset allocation. And let me explain that. So what I mean by that is. Number one, taking the first step and saving into your 401k to at least get the full company match because that's just free money. I don't care if they're matching you 100% up to, say, 5% or they're only matching you 10 cents on every dollar. It's free money. Yep. So you should be maxing it out to maxing to get the full company match. Then I think you need to determine that based on your tax rate, if an IRA or a Roth IRA better suits you at that point. Um, and then you max that out, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the max contribution to IRAs in 2020 is $6,000 or $7,000 if you're over 50. 
Okay. So the reason why I say that is there's more investment flexibility in IRAs, right? Yep. So um, in your 401k, you're only limited to a select few mutual funds or ETFs that you can invest in. That your company's pre-selected from. Right, exactly. And we just like the investment flexibility that an IRA allows. So once you are done maxing out your IRA, whether it be a Roth or a traditional, which is a conversation for another day, I think that it's smart to go back to your 401k until you max it out, which is 19,500 in 2020 or 26,000 for people that are uh, 50 and older because it's taking advantage of a uh, tax advantage retirement account, right? So if you still have money left over after that, I think now because you can invest your HSAs, I think it's important for people to go and max their HSAs if it's available to you if you have a high deductible plan. Right. And so for 2020, for individuals, the max contribution is three thousand five hundred and fifty dollars. And for families, it's seven thousand one hundred dollars. And I think if you still have money left over after that, then you can open an after tax account, which is not a retirement account. Um, so there's no contribution limits. And that money you know, is accessible to you without any penalty at any time. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't think it's as controversial towards me, um, um, maybe some other advisors, Mark, but yeah. I, I think this is the perfect playbook that you've just laid out for listeners. I mean, you know, you max out the 401k first, do enough to maximize the match, right? Then you go and you max out a personal IRA. Once you do that, you go back, finish up maxing out the 401k. You know, next you start tackling the HSA and then from there an after-tax brokerage account. I love it. Yeah. So uh, I think I, you got the playbook here. Yeah, and I do. And I, th I think that I think the other point I wanted to make, too, is that I think that a lot of people spend a lot of time on trying to determine the most optimal asset allocation, where I think, in my opinion, it makes sense to make these decisions first and maximizing tax advantage. You're maximizing uh, the match money. Right. Yeah. Tax and you're, efficiency. You're maximizing things you can control. There it is. Right? There it is. Because in every given Say it again. Things you can control. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In any given year, you know, depending on when you start with, you know, saving into your 401k or saving into your IRA, US could be outperforming international or vice versa, or bonds could be outperforming stocks or vice versa. So I think worrying about the things you can control, which I think we preached on this podcast before, are a lot more important than worrying about the things that are out of most people's control. So, well put. Just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and I guess kind of just rolling right into the tweets and articles research for the week, Matt. There was a tweet that really uh, grinded my gears uh, a couple of weeks ago that I want to share with listeners. Um, and it, for people to really understand this, I encourage you to check out um, the show notes tab on our website, jessupwealthmanagement.com. Uh, under the podcast tab, there's a tab for show notes because this really won't make sense unless you're looking at the same chart that Matt and I are looking at. Um, so back on February 15th, uh, Otavio Costa uh, posted a chart of the consumer confidence to misery index ratio, which for sake of this conversation, it doesn't even matter what that is, the point I'm trying to make. And again, I posted this to our show notes uh, for all of you to look at. So please, if you want to see what I'm talking about here, go check that out. So his tweet reads, rolling over, consumer confidence to misery index ratio is now falling after reaching all-time highs in July of 2019. That was when the Fed panicked and 73% of the yield curve inverted. Key point about this ratio, declines after cyclical peaks led to every recession since 1967. And I did not like this post, Matt. OK, I, I so if it. you're looking at the chart, one can make a really strong argument that it peaked in 1516. I was going to say that. And there was no recession. So I think I'm I'm OK with someone tweeting this, but providing some more contacts. But this is exactly the type of fear mongering that we need less of. I would absolutely agree. And with so statement. I responded on Twitter and I said, very misleading chart without other context. This is the type of fear mongering that we need less of. Look at 1516. So I think when you're, you know, you're posting charts and you're saying, well, this is a peak or that's a peak or, you know, here's a peak. It's very discretionary on 
you know, what's a peak to a different person. Okay? Exactly. So I call this, you know, this is um, active research selection that uh, backs up their bias. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. That's why, you know, the thing I really pride ourselves on is when we're going through research and tweets, you know, we're providing basic statistics a lot of times, mm -hmm. you know, so we're going to quote sources like I did this morning, like Bespoke, right? Where we're giving the raw research the last 20 times this happened, this has been the average. Right. right? And, then, and then following that up with, it might not look like this average. It might look completely different. But at least it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a guideline. But when you, <clears throat> when you take a chart and then try to manipulate it to back up your bias when the point you're making is, is, is debunked yeah. in similar head fakes. Right. How can you use it as a data set? Yeah. That, and then it just goes back to the point that I just think that, you know, charts and tweets like this do a lot more harm than good because it's it's fear mongering yep. and i just think that that forces people to make irrational decisions on top of you know what they're already scared of so i think um, i'm glad that you brought this up and i glad yeah. that i'm glad that you posted the chart and i hope listeners go to the show notes yeah. and look at it yep um second thing that kind of caught my eye uh was something from dennis gartman matt and Dennis has his own daily commentary letter relating to stock markets. Um, and he was on Fox Business on February 11th. And this is what he said, quote, markets continue to go higher from the lower left to the upper right, meaning lower left hand side of the chart to the upper right hand side of the chart. Odds of Trump getting reelected at 70 percent, if not higher, end quote. So I found this funny, Matt, because back on September 13th of 2016, Gartman said, and I quote, a Trump presidency could end this 32 year old bull market, end quote. So, number one, I think it's funny that he's putting odds on the presidency and he's a guy that's supposed to be about the market. So what is his expertise in predicting presidency odds? <laughs> And this is, again, the stuff that we need less of people on the news making bold predictions and odds of who's going to win the presidency. And they're never held accountable. No, they're not held accountable. And we don't even know who the Democratic challenger is going to be yet. How can you put odds on that? It's just like one of those things. It's a guy that's flip flopping from what he said four years ago. And again, it's like this stuff is just meaningless to me. And it makes me mad that these people are on TV because people put a lot of weight on what these people have to say. That's right. Because if you're if you're Fox business and you're putting him up there on a pedestal, people are going to listen. Yeah. Right. So <clears throat> here's the thing I have with the, the doom and gloom guys. OK, we'll throw Dennis Gartman in there because he tends to make very uh, aggressive and bold predictions. Mm -hmm. Right. So. All it took was a couple of these clowns to get a couple of things right in the 0708 crisis. And it's like from that point forward, they could get 15 things wrong in a row and they still put them on the TV. Yeah, I know. Blows my mind. It does. It does. So it just begs the point that like my trust and faith in, you know, the media is just keeps declining because. Um, and not not all media. I'm talking about major news station that have these guys on that just keep fear mongering and fear mongering. And it just doesn't do any Unless good for anybody. They, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't see anybody on there uh, pretty much as level headed anymore. I mean, you got to go out there and make bold, crazy, um, uh, aggressive uh, predictions mm -hmm. or they're not going to put you on there. Yeah, exactly. So, again, another reason why we want to do this podcast to not be like that. Cut through the noise. Cut through the noise. Um, okay, so I'm kind of done with my ranting for the podcast, and I'm going sh to shift gears uh, to some other stuff. So a stat I found interesting from the College Board. Um, a child born in February of 1998, which was 22 years ago, who started college in the fall of 2016, is scheduled to graduate from an average four-year public in-state college in May of 2020. If the child's parents have invest, had invested $143 per month beginning at the child's 1998 birth and had earned an annualized 8% on all invested dollars, the parents would have been able to pay for their child's four-year college expenses of tuition, fees, room, and board. The total four-year cost was an estimated $84,290. So this calculation ignores the ultimate impact of taxes on the investment account. 
um, and all that stuff. But, you know, I think that this is kind of a cool stat map because I think it's people's perception that it takes unreal amounts of money to save for their kids college. And while I understand that, you know, $143 can be a lot of money to some people, there are people out there that can afford to save $143 per month for their college, their kids college, where, you know, it sets them up. So they're not taking out crazy amounts of student debt, which is a huge problem, I think, in this country. And even if parents wanted to put a program together with their own kids, where the kids take a loan from their parents and, you know, don't pay an interest rate or pay a super low interest rate, you know, I think this stat points out that it is doable, you know, to save for all or at least part of your kid's college. So, I mean, cut that number in half and you can pay for half of the kid's college. So I just thought it was an interesting stat to throw out there because again, I think people's perception is that it takes a lot more than that to, to save for kids' colleges. I'm glad you brought this up. And I absolutely agree. I mean, you got time on your side. If you can start early when the, when the child's born, you know, at, at and the that's end. the I think that's the biggest key, Matt, is if you start early enough, you start when they're born, you put uh, birthday money in there that they get from aunts, uncles and grandparents. Yes. Not to interrupt you, but I think that's the most important there you go. point is starting early. I agree. No, I mean, at the end of the day, I think you got time on your side of that case. And that's the biggest advantage you got. And if you can't afford the one hundred and forty three dollars a month, start with twenty five. Start with 50. I mean, you know, you see all the commercials listeners uh, at all these major custodians that have, you know, zero account minimums these days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the excuse of I don't have a thousand dollars to start the account. That's no longer a valid excuse. Right. Right. Uh, Okay. Two more things, Matt, and then I'll give it over to you and stop hogging the mic here. But um, this was a stat from the Commerce Department and. The Commerce Department said that manufacturing output makes up just 11% of the USA's 22 trillion economy, the lowest percentage of our nation's manufacturing sector since 1947. So I just wanted to point this out because this goes back to our point we've made on previous episodes that our economy is evolving and is no longer as dependent on manufacturing as it once was. I think it's great to point it out. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there that it you know, wasn't just me and Matt just talking, speaking our minds are the only people that think that. I really, truly think that we're, you know, we're evolving more to a tech-oriented economy that doesn't depend on you know, the nation's manufacturing as much as it used to. That's a fact, not a rumor, not speculation <laughs> that we've seen so much this past week. Right, exactly, right? exactly. And the last thing I wanted to point out from our friend uh, Charlie Bellello on um, February 24th after the huge sell-off earlier this week in the markets. He tweeted this, the most bullish thing you'll hear today. Tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern, CNBC markets in turmoil. May the odds be ever in your favor. And again, I posted this uh, tweet to our show notes for listeners to check out. And he you know, posted a tweet of the CNBC markets in turmoil, which um, I think in the past has done a pretty good job of predicting um, you know, future returns going forward. So he, he put this chart that he put together um, next to the tweet and had the average uh, S&P 500 forward total returns following the CNBC markets in turmoil specials. Oh, I love this. Yeah, right? So nine months out from every markets in turmoil special, the S&P 500 has been up and it's been positive. The average return over the past nine months after markets in turmoil, 16%. Nine months later, 16%. 16%. Fact. Yes. Okay. Fact. 12 months later, every time S&P 500 has been positive, average return, 20.7%. 20.7, 12 months later. Six months later, it has been positive, the S&P 500, in all but one instance. Okay. All so but one data set. 90% of the time. Okay. All but one data set. Three months out, again, the same thing as six months return. Every three-month period after markets in turmoil, markets have been positive all but one time. So again, 90% of the time. The average return three months out, 6.9%. So again, not saying that this time is going to be the same, but 
I just want to provide some other context for people that they are not getting if they're just following, you know, the news station uh, at night when they're watching dinner. Got it. I mean, the only thing I want to add to this, and uh, this is my opinion, Mm -hmm. okay? My uh, opinion and experience tells me the quicker and more that this market sells off, because in an email that I sent to clients this past week, I pointed out that during the correction for SARS and Zika, from top to bottom, the market corrected about 13%. And through last night's close, we're pretty close to that. We're mm-hmm. about 12. Yep. The, the, the quicker number of days that you have the correction, I think in my opinion, it increases the chances of a V-shape like recovery, okay? The thing that would really concern me is more of a slow bleed that just lasts months right, and months. Right, right. That's not healthy. No. These violent reactions, the the hot money, when it starts to turn, will violently come back in. Yeah. I'm not saying that's today. I'm not even saying that's next week. But when I look at these data sets and I look at where these companies are at, it gives my opinion, uh, it gives me confidence to say that I think this is going to more more V-shaped than people are going to give it credit for. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and I'll turn it over to you. All right, Mr. McEvely, here, here's what I got for you. Another one from Charlie, okay? okay. We're gonna post um, this to the show notes. This is a research piece he had from February 8th, but it's still valid in giving context. So I keep hearing things that there's no earnings per share growth of the S&P anymore, Mark, right? Mm-hmm. As of February 8th, he has a chart going back to 2010, and it's showing that um, 2020, Earnings per share growth year over year was estimated to be up 12%. All right. So could this short-term global slowdown because of COVID-19 put a hamper on that? Yes, but not to the magnitude, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. that uh, the tape is telling you. Right. So um, retail sales growth this year. A couple of weeks ago, they were forecasting growth of over 4% retail sales growth dollars spent in the U.S., Yesterday, you have the National uh, Federation Board um, on uh, retail sales. They came out and said it could be closer to two, two and a half. We're not talking negative 10. We're not talking negative 20. Okay, we're still talking positive growth. And I'm just trying to provide context. Yeah, I agree. I think Louis agrees with you. He just tossed his bone. He he did. He tossed his bone to my my point. (laughs) You see that? I did. Okay, and check that out. We posted that chart to um, to the show notes, too couple more things just to provide maybe some kind of fun facts. So um, if listeners are wondering, the next point I want to make is which S&P 500 sectors, Mark, have the most exposure to China? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with people worried about the virus. So I'm going to go over a couple. So the highest revenue exposed sectors are semiconductors, about 30% of their revenues, followed by tech hardware, 14.3% and consumer service at 13.9. The lowest revenue exposed sectors were banks, 2.5, telecommunication services at a half a percent, approximately, and last was utilities at 0.2. Goes back to the comment I made earlier. In panic selling, you typically don't have utilities going down with everything. Right. You typically don't have consumer staples going down with everything. Right. You don't have health care. And these areas of the market, as you talked about later, were getting thrown out as well, which is indicative of a, a panic selling, which anytime someone panic sells, looking back in history, they tend not to be smart decisions. Yeah, I agree with you there. No, that's a good chart. And yeah, semiconductors uh, and semiconductor equipment um, obviously lead the exposure um, in China. And those have been getting hit the hardest, which makes yes, sense. Yeah. Um, but also that's what's been leading the market over the past six months. I mean, semiconductors have been on fire the past six months. So while do I like that they're getting hammered right now? Absolutely not. But, you know, at some point, you know, there was due for a correction. This you is know? just the reason. This is just there's a reason for it now. Yeah. All right. Last one's a fun one. Okay. So what is the real value, Mark, of $100 where you live? Hmm. Now, we're going to post this to show notes. Yep. This is from the Tax Foundation on February 7th. I found it extremely interesting. I don't think you'll find it too surprising that the relative value of $100 is the least on the east and west coast, right? Right. So on this chart, it's really going to show you, you know, the areas where you get more bang for your buck. 
And I think as time goes on and you see these crazy real estate prices on the East and West Coast, I think you're going to see more and more people when they head into retirement say, you know what? I don't need this big of a house. And by the way, I don't need to live in this area where the cost of living is so high. I'm going to move to and look at the chart Mm -hmm. closer to family and the cost of real estate is probably half, if not a lot less. Yep. Their uh, retirement dollars will go so much farther. I think you're going to see more and more of this, Mark. I think you are too. And I think if you look at this chart, you know, the Midwest is kind of the hotspot for this. It so really is. Where we are, not to be biased, but in Ohio, it looks like the dollar goes pretty far. Um, you got states like Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, um, that the dollar goes, goes pretty far as well. And, you know, I think... Uh, I think number one that, you know, these areas on the coast that people are kind of running out of room, number one, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, cost of living are so expensive on the coast. But number two, um, you know, I think that you have more of these uh, hot cities in the Midwest pop up, um, kind of like Columbus, for example, that is going to attract a lot of workers and a lot of young talent Yep. that eventually you're going to see a lot more, like you said, of this migration from the coast kind of towards more of the middle of the country. I absolutely agree. I thought it was an interesting chart. So listeners, check that out. Yes. Uh, I'm going to send it back to Mark uh, for the uh, financial planning topic of the week. All right. So uh, this week's financial planning topic of the week, Matt, um, comes from an article on the Wall Street Journal on February 17th by Shlomo Benartzi. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, And the title of it is People Don't Save Enough for Emergencies, But There Are Ways to Fix That. Oh, it's going to be a good one. Yeah. So I thought this was a good article um, because the rule of thumb in our industry, as you know, Matt, for a long time is that people should have anywhere between three to six months living expenses in an emergency fund. And depending on who you ask, some people could say it's less than that. Some people could say it's all the way up to a year's worth of living expenses. Okay. And in my opinion, most people don't have that type of money saved up. So let's go through this and kind of point out some ideas that people are throwing around there to help people have emergency savings. Love it. So, um, and I'm always kind of skeptical about surveys, but I thought this was a good point. Um, A survey by the AARP Public Policy Institute, for instance, found that 71% of workers would likely contribute to an emergency savings fund if their employer offered one, and 87% would do so if their employer made matching contributions. Do you think this is something that potentially employiers could look into? Um, to offer as a benefit for people? I think it's phenomenal, especially for um, a lot of entry-level positions. I love this idea. I do too. I think it's great. Um, And then moving on, according to a 2019 study by the Federal Reserve, roughly four in 10 Americans wouldn't be able to come up with $400 in a financial emergency. If they do have an unexpected expense, they have to rely on costly measures such as taking out a payday loan or borrowing on a credit card. So I think this is also what's kind of fueling some of the debt problem that we have in this country, and it's getting to be a never-ending downward spiral. So I think employers could really take advantage here of uh, offering this as a benefit. And even if the match isn't as much as the 401k, sure. I think that they could attract some quality workers that you know are looking for a way to increase their emergency savings that can't necessarily afford to do it on a week-to-week or month-to-month basis by I themselves. I love this idea, Mark. Yeah, it's really good. Um, recent research, uh, that Shlomo conducted with Hale Hirschfield of the university of California, Los Angeles, um, showed that people were four times as likely to start saving when asked if they wanted to save $5 a day versus those who were asked to save $150 per month. (laughs) Well, it's just it's a it's a mental thing, right? So while saving the large monthly amount feels like an unaffordable barrier, the small daily amount feels like an opportunity, even though they're actually equivalent amounts. So just like any other financial undertaking, my viewpoint here is baby steps. So it's I love it. always easier to do things. We've talked baby about steps. In the podcast in in, 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 uh, in in recent history about our one percent rule, yep. which we can cover in next week's podcast. But we'll recover that again, yeah. which is just taking incremental steps to keep raising your savings. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so then Shlomo goes on to talk about auto enrollment, kind of like for a 401k for this savings that could be offered by employers. So auto, I love this idea. Yeah, I think this is great. Auto enrollment also would maximize participation in emergency savings accounts. However, if auto enrollment isn't possible, either for the regulatory reasons or because the employer doesn't think it's suitable, then employers should consider other options in the behavioral economics toolbox. So my thing is, if employers don't adopt this, it's going to be up to the American public to take this on themselves and they can automate this just like any other bill you pay you know, every month from your checking. So there's a bunch of high yield online savings accounts out there now, Matt. Like sure. I know Marcus by Goldman Sachs, uh, Ally mm-hmm. Financial has a high yield savings yep. account that automatically, again, like you said, even if you start at $5 a month or $15 a month, have an automatic withdrawal out of your checking. They all have and, the no minimums savings probably, account. So there's nothing stopping you. There is no minimums. Yeah. For Thanks. example, for like Marcus, I know that there's no minimums. Um, so being able to automate that and just have it come out on the same day each month forces you to be able to live without that five or $15 per month to start out with. And it starts accruing in that savings account. And the other idea for uh, listeners is, you know, you got your direct deposit through your employer. There's nothing stopping you from adding a second direct deposit. Right. right? Exactly. So what you can do is you can sit there and have that savings account be 20 bucks a month or I'm sorry, 20 bucks a pay period, right. Or whatever amount. And then whatever's left over, the bulk of your pay goes to your normal checking account. Yeah. So you can have two direct deposits. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I think that's something that people, I think, aren't really aware of. So. Yeah, they think I got yeah. one and done. Right. Yep. So thank you for mentioning that. Yes, sir. So a couple different ways that Shlomo outlines that employers can start incorporating this. Number one, you can make it a portion of a worker's annual bonus. So instead of just getting that all in cash. I like that. Contribute it. Kind of like a profit sharing I arrangement like where some companies put most of it into the 401k and then they give you a, a yippee check. Yep. You can give someone a yippee check, but then put 10 or 15% of that bonus into an emergency savings fund. Love it. Which I think is great. If workers are paid biweekly, they can save part of their paycheck during the two months a year in which they get three paychecks. Love it. So if you have, you know, a, a, a pay period like this, just put that other paycheck into the emergency savings. Love it. In some countries, such as Germany and Austria, employees get their bonus in the form of a 13th paycheck at the end of the year, and thus they can be invited to save some of that extra paycheck. So that's another way to do it, learning from other countries. And the fourth way is if a worker is getting a pay raise, he could save part of the additional income. Once he has saved enough, he could then get his full raise. From a mental accounting perspective, it would feel like a double raise. That just kind of coincides with, you know, when you get a 1% or a 2% raise from your employer, you should add 1% or 2% to your 401k. That's right. But if you're in a point where you're contributing a healthy amount to your 401k and you have nothing in emergency savings, you could add that 1% or 2% to saving into your emergency saving funds until you have that three to six months living expenses or whatever you feel comfortable at instead of increasing the way you live uh, and, you know, keeping that at a level amount and making sure you have all your ducks in a row before, you know, you go out and start living, you know, more than you had been. Um, so I think that that's, that that's a really good good way too. Um, just looking to see if I want to mention anything else. Uh, okay, so the last thing I want to mention about this, Matt, is um, Shlomo goes on to say, In fact, 60% of American households in one survey from the Pew Charitable Trust experienced a financial shock, defined as a significant loss of income or a major expense. In the previous 12 months, a third of households experienced two or more shocks. In these cases, as soon as funds are withdrawn from the emergency account, the next windfall, be it a bonus, a 13th paycheck, or the next pay raise, they would automatically be reallocated to fill the account. So I think again, this is that's just a way that employers can help out their employees and make sure that, you know, they're on, you know, a good financial footing that, you know, they can 
track their emergency savings funds. And if it gets depleted, then it's like, okay, the next time you have a, uh, a three pay period month, that third paycheck is going to go into the emergency savings fund to replenish that amount. I love it. I think this is an excellent idea, Mark. I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, and I'm not even necessarily opposed to, you know, almost a, a government program like this for people that have a, employers that don't offer this. Yeah. Um, I think that it could be better than a lot of the government programs we have out there now yep. um, to help people from a financial standpoint, because, um, you know, like we were just talking about, there are times where, you know, people have, you know, between 200 and a thousand dollar expenses that they don't have the cash on hand Yeah. that, you know, I think it's extremely important to start, you know, tackling this because I think this problem leads into the debt problem that always gets highlighted in in the news and in the media. I love it. But there's not necessarily always, in my opinion, uh, feasible solutions offered. And I think that this is an excellent way that people could do this. So uh, if you're listening to this, I think employees, this is something that you can bring up to your employers to see if they'd be uh, willing to do or offer in the form of a benefit, a benefit just to get you know the conversation started. I love it. I'm so, glad you brought this up this yeah. week. Yeah, so that was that's one of the, the best articles I've read in uh, in a while uh, relating to benefits. So, anything else, Matt? Before we sign off for the week, I know this was a longer than normal podcast, but there was a lot we wanted to get out there. Yeah, especially uh, in light of the, of the volatility this week, I think it was warranted. No, I, I, I think I've uh, made my kind of stance very clear at the beginning of the podcast. Um, I just want to just reiterate, uh, listeners, that. Uh, Panicking on rumors in fear uh, historically have never served me well in this in, in my business um, in making investment decisions for my clients. So that is my word of wisdom as I sign off. Yeah, no, I have nothing more to add to that. So uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the 35th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will be back with you next week, and we hope everyone has a safe and enjoyable weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.